Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Probably a page. His son, Uzziah, the 26th chapter, he also was good, but. Some of the kings, most of the kings, when they're described as good, but, it was because they reset up the shrines, or they didn't, actually didn't set up the shrines. Most of them, when they were good, but, six of them were good, but, they didn't tear down all the shrines within the land of Judah. They followed God, but they weren't particular exactly with how they worshipped, and they let others continue to worship in the shrines in various parts of Judah. Uzziah was good, but, for a different reason. We see here in verse 16 of chapter 26, but when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. Uzziah was very successful, followed God for much of his, his uh, kingship, and then he, pride got the better of him. And he was strong in his heart, it says, was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. That wasn't his job. That was the job of the priests. But, being a little bit filled with pride, not following the rules to the exact, exact uh, detail, he went in and started to burn incense in place of the priest. And he became a good butt king. Because God was and is detailed about how we worship him. And we know that from our studies over the last couple of years. Then there were the good kings. No buts, just good. And we can see the difference. We saw a couple of examples where Amaziah was good, but not completely. Not with a loyal heart. Not completely. Turn with me to 2 Kings 18 for an example of the difference between the two and how they're described. And we go back to Manasseh's father, Hezekiah. And there were only, after David, there were, in, uh, there were only two that were good, no buts. Good completely. That was Hezekiah and Josiah. Here's an example of one in 2 Kings 18, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, and you see that, when, again, I mentioned as you go through the, the genealogies of these kings, it'll tell you where they were in relationship to the, the king of the other side. That Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. And he was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. So David is set up as an example of one who was a good king, no buts, completely. And here Hezekiah is described as one who did what was right in the sight of the Lord. End of story. And we see the differences between the two. So the history of the kings of Israel, as our young people might remember, take us from Saul, way back in 1 Samuel 10, when he was made king, all the way through Zedekiah, before the captivity to the Babylonians in 2 Kings 24. Spanned approximately 466 years from, again, the approximate dates, 1052 to 586 B.C., at which point Judah falls under the captivity of Babylon for about 47 years, 586 to 539 B.C., when Persia, under King Cyrus, defeats Babylon and began to allow the captives to return to their native homelands. Which brings us to the story of Ezra. So let's go to Ezra, chapter 3. A 
quick synopsis of the kingdoms of Israel, the, king of Is- the kings of Israel, and then by extension the kings of Israel in Judah, from Saul through to the end of Zedekiah. They go through their 47 years approximately of captivity to the Babylons. And then Babylon is defeated by Persia, and there's a twist to the story. We come upon the example of Zerubbabel. He's the governor of Judah at the time. And again, you'll recall those last four kings that I mentioned were vassals of first Egypt and then Babylon. And Zerubbabel was the grandson of the second to last of those vassal kings, Jehoiachin. And he, as the governor, was allowed to lead the Jews back to Jerusalem. And there were just a little over, according to history and scripture, there was a little over 40,000 that were allowed to, that ended up going back. Everyone was invited to go back, but only a little over 40,000 did. Ezra chapter 3, so where we come upon the group, having come back to Jerusalem, and they begin to worship God through festival keeping. When the seventh month had come, verse 1, Ezra chapter 3, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Joshua, the son, the son of Josadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of the Lord God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. So here, they get back to Jerusalem. They come upon the seventh month. They know it is holy time. So they build themselves a makeshift altar, and they offer sacrifices in accordance with the law as they're relearning it, as it was given to Moses. Afterwards, verse 5, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, which we know is the Feast of Trumpets, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So unlike the Babylonians, Persia was on their side and they wanted people to have their own culture and they allowed the Jews to come back and worship God. Now in the middle of the second month, seven months later, seven months later, in the second month of the second year of their coming into the house of God at Jerusalem, in verse 8, Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, And all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. They were going to start to build the temple. Then Joshua with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons, and the sons of Judah arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God. The sons of Henadad with their sons and the brethren with with the Levites. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, who you recall was one of the writers of the Psalms, 
with symbols to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So after all of these years, these 466 years of being split, 47 years of being in captivity to the Babylonians, a couple of years now being back home, a little over a year into their second year, they were able to build the altar and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles and the Fall of Holy Days, and now they've laid a foundation for the temple, and they celebrate. What a celebration this was going to be. The foundation has been laid. God is great. His mercy endures forever. We have the foundation. Chapter 4, verse 1. And when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to the Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the heads of the father's houses of Israel said to them, you may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in, bind, in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, or Darius, king of Persia. So the foundation's been laid, they celebrate, and then they come upon some roadblocks. A little bit with themselves, a little bit from the outside, a little bit of, of trying to share the work with Israel. They weren't quite uh, uh, reunified yet. And they're frustrated, and the building stops. And we see that down in verse 24. Thus, the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased, and it discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The foundation is belayed. God is great. We're allowed to worship now in our lands. Let's build the temple. There's a couple of roadblocks, and the work stops. The work stops. Again, a little bit of resistance from the outside, a little bit of lack of effort on the inside, more, more than the resistance from the outside. Delayed the completion of the temple until the reign of King Darius, which didn't start until 521 B.C. And if you're following the math, they're back 539 B.C., somewhere around 538, 537. They start the foundation. The foundation's laid. And then 16 years later, Darius comes on the scene, and that brings us to chapter 5. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel and Joshua rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, helping them. The temple starts to be rebuilt 16 to 18 years later. Again, released from Babylon, they begin to worship, they lay the foundation, the work stops. And we're now at 520 B.C., the second year of King Darius. And God has raised up Haggai and Zechariah to prophesy, which brings us to where Andrew read for us in Haggai chapter 1.
Haggai chapter 1. Verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And we begin in the sixth month, on the very first day of the month, if you're thinking back, Wednesday, August 27th of this year was the first day of the sixth month, not that long ago. And when you refer to verse 15, you'll see that the end of Haggai's first oracle was 24 days later, on the 24th day of the sixth month. So we are smack right in the middle of the time of year when Haggai gave his first oracle and his first prophecy. So with summer now behind us, we're back settling into our regular routines. We're back at work. We're back at school. Vacations are over. The feast is coming. The, we, again, are currently right in the middle of the sixth month. We're preparing for the fall festivals. Those of us who are going to Leamington, working together, hard together to, for this Feast of Tabernacles. Are you happy with your temple? Are you happy with your temple? The folks in Judah, in Jerusalem, they were pleased with their foundation. So much so, the building stopped. We built a foundation. God is great. He's with us. He is merciful. He endures forever. We've built the foundation, and we can stop. Are we happy with our personal temple? Is it complete? After 18 months as a congregation, have we finished building a place of worship? Or do we still have work to do? These are questions we must ask ourselves, and they're timely, given that our presence in the middle of the sixth month of God's calendar. So what I would like to do today is look at Haggai's first oracle, taking place at this very time of year, and ask us, are we finished? Have we built the temple? Are we satisfied with where we are? We're here in Haggai. Let's stay in Haggai chapter 1. Again, we set the timing. Starts on the first day of the sixth month. Finishes up on the 24th day of the sixth month, which happens to be this coming Friday. Just as setting the stage and keeping our minds at how long it actually took when he began to preach before we come to the end of the, end of the first part of the story. Again, keeping in mind they've been captive for 47 years. It had been over 19 years since their release, and they still only had the foundation. Let's read, continue reading Haggai's first oracle here with where Andrew picked up. Verse 2, thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. That's probably why they took 18 years off. It's just not time yet to continue finishing building the building of the temple. And the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in the ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build a temple, that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. You look for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, 
because of my house that is in ruins. While every one of you runs to his own house, therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains on the grain and the new wine and oil on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock and on all labor, all the labor of your hands. Now I rarely use a modern translation. In fact, I don't know that I ever have. But I would like to read from a modern translation a few of these verses to hear the impact of how God, what God was trying to get across to, these, to his folks here who, with a great foundation, had stopped building. Then the Lord sent this message to the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? This is what the Lord of Heaven's armies says. Look at what's happening to you. You've planted much but harvest little. You eat but are not satisfied. You drink but are still thirsty. You put on clothes but cannot keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. This is what the Lord of hosts says. Look at what's happening to you. Now go up into the hills, bring down timber, and rebuild my house. Then I will will take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You hoped for rich harvests, but they were poor. And when you brought your harvest home, I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins, says the Lord of hosts, while all of you are busy building your own fine houses. It's because of you that the heavens withhold the dew and the earth produces no crops. I've called for a drought on your field and hills, a drought to wither the grain and grapes and olive trees and all your other crops, a drought to starve you and your livestock and to ruin everything you have worked so hard to get. It was amazing that with a solid foundation that they had had gloriously built, had praised God for it, that for 18 years, everything came to a grinding halt. So God had to send Haggai and Zechariah, but for purposes today we'll look at Haggai, to engage his people of Judah in riding the ship and properly devoting themselves to the life that God had called them to. They had just come out of a life of servitude. They were miraculously released by non-covenant leaders of all things, people that had no clue of the covenant, but had released them to go back to worship their God. Being part of the covenant people means putting first things first. That was God's message to the people of Judah. Now, the remainder of Haggai's prophecy, which we will see here, we'll we'll finish the first part in verse 12, Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. They were willing, they just needed some motivation to kickstart kick start the rebuilding again. They weren't evil. They weren't turning aside from worshiping God. They just got delayed. They weren't an evil people. They weren't like Amaziah or Uzziah who had lived a life of good kingship and then turned evil. They were good people, grateful to be released from, from their captivity. But they just sort of got bogged down in life. In Haggai, verse 13, the Lord's messenger spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So while he was trying to encourage them, he was there to engage them and edify, to say, I'm I'm right here. You don't need to worry about them. You don't need to worry about the roadblocks. I am with you. Get building. Start building the temple. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, 
and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of God, Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. They got so bogged down that it took three weeks of prophesying by Haggai before they finally said, okay, okay, we get the message, we'll start building. And again, the remainder of Haggai's prophecy extends over the following three months. We don't have time to cover that today. I encourage you to study it on your own, discuss it with others when we have our, our open session downstairs as we sharpen each other's iron. Zechariah's prophecy as well is connected. And it commences at the exact same time in, in these, this in-between time. If you go, actually, let's flip over to Haggai 2. Verse 1, just to, again, part of the setting. Verse 1 tells us in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, that's the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, begins his second oracle. And then when you go down to uh, verse 9, his second oracle ends in verse 9. Verse 10 says, in the 24th day of the ninth month, a couple of months after the feast ends. In that period, between verse 9 and verse 10, is when Zechariah begins his prophecy in the eighth month, which you can see in Zechariah chapter 1. So these two guys are prophesying at the exact same time, trying to engage God's people to get building the temple. So I ask, are we satisfied with our personal temple? Are we satisfied with where we are in our lives? And are we satisfied with where we are as a congregation in the personal temple and in the community temple of sorts? To answer that question, to help us to, and I'm not going to answer that for us, I'm simply asking the question. Let's go to Second Chronicles chapter 6 to find out what a temple is. Second Chronicles chapter 6. Verse 18. Second Chronicles verse, chapter 6, verse 18. This is coming into the finishing of the temple that Solomon built, the one that was destroyed, that they had to rebuild in the time of Ezra. Chapter 6, verse 18. But God will, again, this is part of Solomon's prayer of dedication, as you can see, probably highlighted as a section in verse 12. Solomon praying for the dedication of the new temple. Verse 18. But God will indeed dwell with men on the earth. But will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant in his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you. That your eyes may be open toward this temple day and night, toward the place where you said you would put your name, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes towards this place, and you may hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive Solomon's request to God as he dedicates this new temple. Let's drop down to chapter 7, verse 1. We won't read the entire prayer, dedication prayer, but as he finishes up in verse 42, we see his finishing up of his prayer. When Solomon, chapter 7 and verse 1, had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. 
And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. From the time Israel left Egypt, God provided a physical focal point for his people to relate to a place where God dwells on this earth. It's just a physical place, but in God's system of worship as he taught the children of Israel, there was a physical focal point that they could look to as the place where God dwells. First it was the tabernacle, which we read about in Exodus when they built that. Then this temple that Solomon was blessed to have built represented where God dwells. This provided a place, as we see here, for the priesthood to offer sacrifices, for prayers for the people, for incense to burn, representing the prayers going up to God, as we see the, the visual reminders up to the people of what worship was like. Prayers going up to God, sacrifices. We see here, in order to show Israel, show the people here that God was in the temple, he consumed the burnt offering so much, and there was so much smoke, the priests couldn't even stay in there to show them that God was in this place. We are finite people. And God, in determining how we worship him, provided a centerpiece around which we worship. What about today? What about the New Testament church? Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 12. All things, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. But God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit that is in you, that you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Our bodies are tabernacles for the Holy Spirit. Here, Paul calls them temples for the Holy Spirit. Individually, as he's writing here, because here he's writing as individuals, do you not know that your bodies, verse 15, are members of Christ? So he's talking here about the individual body. We here are temples for the Holy Spirit. Temples where God places his Holy Spirit to help us grow, to help us put on the mind of Christ, where he will write his law in our hearts when he discusses the new covenant back in Jeremiah. From this perspective we see that Christ dwells in us. And therefore, 
we are a temple for that dwelling place. Much like God came down and dwelt in the tabernacle and he came and dwelt in the temple, through his Holy Spirit he dwells in us and we become a temple for God. And much like in Old Testament times, here what he's referring to with food and the sexual immorality is that we're not to desecrate where God dwells. Remember when you read the, I talked about the evil kings. What happened with the evil kings is they went and took the the gods and the, the shrines of foreign gods and brought them into his temple. The good butt kings simply left the foreign shrines standing in some cases. But the temple of God was fine. The bad kings, much like what Paul is referring to here with the sexual immorality, desecrated the temple of God. The bad kings allowed foreign gods to come in to the temple and, he, and it, the, the God's temple became desecrated. Here Paul in, in 1 Corinthians referring to sexual immorality as an example of something that desecrates his temple because our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is why so many kings were evil when they allowed foreign worship into God's temple. They desecrated the Old Testament temples much like those who participate in sin desecrate our temple. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's review some teachings that we saw last year. So we see in part that our bodies are the temple of God. Our, the, the Holy Spirit within us allows us to be a temple for God. So are we happy with where we're at in our life, in our walk with God, in our journey? Are we happy with that? But now let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, and we'll recall some of this teaching from last year, Paul, verse 1, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace to you and peace from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then dropping down to verse 10, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. I draw your attention here because he's writing to the church. He's not writing to individuals in the church. He's writing to the church as a whole. To the church of God, which is at Corinth. And again, that word church is the word ecclesia, which is a group, singular, of called out once plural. So it's one of those funny, uh, funny words that are singular plural words. I don't even know if that's the right term. But he's writing to the church as a unit. The church at Corinth as a unit. Chapter 3. And I, brethren, verse 1, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. Again, he's speaking to the group. Brethren is, again, one of these singular plural words that define a group of people that are made up of parts. So again, much like we read in chapter 1, this is written to the, to the group, made up of individuals. And then we won't take time to read verses 2 through 8, but they, we see that it's a discussion on disunity, following individuals, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, no, you know what, I don't even follow either of those men, I I'm simply follow Christ. Verse 5 through 8 talk about Paul's, Paul's teaching on that and how trying to change their mindset on that. 
And now I would like to get to the key text for the, the message here. That's verses 9 through 17. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Temple. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And if anyone defiles the temple of God, this building that he refers to back in verse 9, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Reminding them that they are temples, but as a group, they are God's building. They are the temple in which God dwells. Let's analyze a few points here. Verse 9, where we were. You are God's building. Again, to the group as a whole. His message was to the brethren, to the church at Corinth. And here, unlike where we saw in chapter 6, where he talked about their bodies are members of Christ, which breaks it down on an individual basis, here he's talking to the group. And Paul refers to the congregation as God's building, and then further on follows it up by calling them the temple. Why? Because God's presence is here. It's a place people can look to where they know God is. If they want prayers, they come to the temple. They come to where God dwells as his physical focal point on this earth. Verse 10. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Others build on our foundation. We don't necessarily even build on our foundation. Paul built on the foundation of the church. He said others, probably Apollos, Barnabas, helped build on the foundation. We, of course, contribute to that building, but others help build our foundation. God, Christ, the apostles, Scripture, the church itself. Others build on our foundation. Paul has laid the foundation for the Corinthian church. Others build on that. Verse 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Something struck me as I read this. Christ is our foundation. Completely perfect, the one whose mind we are striving after. But even a perfect foundation like Jesus Christ is incomplete because Paul needed to build on it. Even having the the perfect foundation that the people in Haggai's time thought they had. We've built the foundation. God is here. He's perfect. Uh, Praise God. We've built the foundation. They had the perfect foundation, so they stopped. Here, Christ is our perfect foundation. And yet, that's not even enough. We must continue to build because the temple isn't complete yet. He's the foundation, but it's not enough. We can't stop building. We must build until we're finished. So is our temple finished? 
Is our personal temple complete? Is our community temple complete? Are we happy with the foundation that, that we've laid in our lives, that we've laid as a community? Or is, is there still work to be done? Quoting from a book entitled, I Am a Church Member, by Tom Rayner. He's the president of Lifeway Christian Resources. He writes, Based on our research of 557 churches from 2004 to 2010, Nine out of ten churches in America are declining or growing at a pace that is slower than that of their communities. Simply stated, churches are losing ground in their own backyards. Another way of looking at it is generationally. About two-thirds of the builder generation, those born before 1946, are Christians. But only 15% of the millennials are Christians. The millennials are the largest generation in America's history with almost 80 million members. They were born between 1980 and 2000, and we have all but lost that generation. We can blame it on the secular culture, and we often do. We can blame it on the godless politics of our nation. We can do that as well. We can blame it on the churches, the hypocritical members, and the uncaring pastors. Lots of Christians are doing that. So we see that in society, God is losing his place. People are losing steam. People are are satisfied with where they are. And things are slowing down. Come with me to Exodus 36. Exodus 36. Exodus chapter 36. The people have started to contribute some of their goods for the building of the tabernacle. The artisans have been selected. They've gathered all of their stuff to build the tabernacle. Verse 2. Then Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, everyone whose heart was stirred to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of making of the sanctuary. So they continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. Then all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work he was doing, and they spoke to Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave a commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done. Indeed, too much. Imagine a time when God had to tell his people to stop. You've built enough. You've given enough. Stop. The tabernacle is perfect. We can't take any more. We can't. We're, we're going to waste now. To stop bringing this stuff. Have we done enough in our lives, individually and collectively, to cause God to say, "Stop. You've made it. You've done enough. Stop." Have we done enough, or do we have more to do? Imagine the time when Moses has to command. 
enough. Stop. I can't, we can't take anymore. You're doing too much. Now, in this case, they're talking about bringing physical things, but that's not what building the temple is. Building the temple is it's so many more things that we know. We've talked about it for, for so long. It's not just about bringing physical things to the temple. Have we done enough for God that he can say, enough, stop, you've done, you've done more than you need to. Rainer continues, what I am proposing is that we who are church members need to look in the mirror. I am suggesting that congregations across America are weak because many of us church members have lost the biblical understanding of what it means to be part of the body of Christ. We join our churches expecting others to serve us, to feed us, and to care for us. We don't like the hypocrites in the church, but we fail to see our own hypocrisies. God did not give us local churches to become country clubs where membership means we have privileges and perks. He placed us in churches to serve, to care for others, to pray for leaders, to learn, to teach, to give, and in some cases, to die for the sake of the gospel. Many churches are weak because we have members who have turned the meaning of membership upside down. It's time to get it right. It's time to become a church member as God intended. It's time to give instead of being entitled. Strong words to folks in the Christian community where attendance has slowed down, where attendance has stopped, where attendance has gone backwards, where youth don't come. We're blessed and privileged to have nearly half of our congregation made up of youth. Not every church has that. Not every congregation has that. I have a proposal for our men's and women's fellowships for the winter months between the Feast of Tabernacles and Passover next year. I reviewed this text. It's a book called I Am a Church Member with Pastor Adrian and Deacon Jan. We've read it. There are six chapters or modules that we can work through as a group and use this text as a basis for combining our men's and women's fellowship for six months to help us see if we can be a little better. Just to see if there's something more we can build on the foundation that God has blessed us so with. I have a copy here. I'll leave it out downstairs for you to thumb through. Feel free to browse through it. Everything is based on scripture and doesn't deviate from doctrine. We've gone, three of us have gone through it. We will be purchasing copies, about 20 copies for now. They're five bucks each that we can purchase, and we'll give one to each family here. We can talk more about this later as we get closer. It'll be, we won't start till November after the feast. And we can talk about that and perhaps in a town hall or, or together. But we'll each, each family will get a copy. And again, more information will follow as we work towards using a resource, a working resource for our fellowship groups. He continues, Join me on this journey of discovering or rediscovering the privilege and the joy of church membership. And before you get too caught up in the meaning of church membership, take time to read the next brief chapter. I won't do that today. Let us, take the next, let us then take six steps carefully and prayerfully. And at the end of each step, let us be willing to make a commitment, a real commitment to our church. And when this journey is over for you, two things will likely take place. First, you will likely have a new or renewed attitude about your church and you will learn the joy of being last instead of seeking to be first. Instead of, and this is not a, a, a discussion about our group, this is his comments in general. 
Instead of being a whiner, complaining about what's wrong with your church, you will be a unifier, seeking what's best for your church. Second, your church will begin to change. It will become healthier because one of its members is healthier. And as the church gets healthier, it will have a greater impact on its community and the world. And we may just discover that the reason our nation is in such bad shape is because our churches are so unhealthy. That lack of health is evident when 9 out of 10 churches are no longer reaching their communities. But that can change with you beginning now. I am a church member. And in the next few pages, you can discover what, really, what that really means. Get ready for your life to change. Get ready for your church to change. And watch what an impact your church can have on the community and, indeed, the entire world. Food for thought that we can consider. I'll leave that, that out as we consider a bit of a six-month program for our men's and women's fellowship groups. Turn with me to, as we close, to Ezra chapter 6. Ezra chapter 6. We left off in Ezra 5 with Haggai and Zechariah getting the command from God to go encourage the people because things sort of got bogged down. Verse 14, Ezra 6. So the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. And they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel, according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which is in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. It took four years, four years, to finish the temple. Then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. And they offered sacrifices at the dedication of this house of God, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for, the, for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. They assigned the priests to their divisions and the Levites to their divisions over the service of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. And the descendants of the captivity kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves, and all of them were ritually clean. And they slaughtered the Passover lambs for all the descendants of the captivity, for the brethren, the priests, and for themselves. Then the children of Israel who ate, who had returned from the captivity ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. With human beings, God's church isn't perfect. We won't be perfect, and the temple won't be completely finished until Christ comes. And we rise from the ground to meet him with new bodies or from our physical existence to meet him in the air. We're not perfect, and we won't be. But the foundation has been laid, and it's not finished yet. And we must continue to build. Because there is joy in heaven when the place of God to dwell in is complete. When God's temple is complete there will be joy in heaven. So let's build our temple with a determination where God has to ask us to stop 
because we've built enough, we have given too much. We are less than two weeks away from his fall holy days. Let us focus our efforts in building his temple, a place of peace where all can flourish and grow as we wait for his glorious kingdom to come. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.